Welcome to the Legal Download Podcast, a rundown of the latest issues impacting your business from Kelly Dry. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Joe Green with the Environmental Group at Kelly Dry and Warren. And today I will be talking about one of the more popular topics from my blog, Kelly Greenlaw. That's Kelly with a K-E-L-L-E-Y, Greenlaw. Uh, and from discussions with clients. That is the notorious California Proposition 65. Now, Prop 65 is a popular topic for good reasons, though you might say for all the wrong reasons. Uh, Prop 65 is unlike most, if not all, other regulations and laws that you may be familiar with. And what makes Prop 65 unique is, in many ways, the root of why it is so frustrating for companies and, frankly, confusing to the public. First, let's quickly let's review. Prop 65 is the law passed by California voter referendum as the Safe Drinking Water Act and Safe Drinking Water and Toxic Enforcement Act of 1986, which requires businesses to provide a warning to customers or users of a product or a facility prior to exposing them to a chemical listed by the state as causing cancer or reproductive harm. Now, who would vote against that? Of course, it passed as a referendum, right? But the devil is in the details. Other provisions of the law deal with environmental and workplace exposures, but most of the action in the cases that you see involve consumer products and the ubiquitous warnings that are on many of them. From a big picture level, Prop 65 is unique, deliberately so. It was deliberately crafted and intentionally to flip the traditional U.S. regulatory model on its head. In short, rather than requiring a government agency or a plaintiff, to prove a harm or demonstrate a risk that requires the company to take action, Prop 65 flips that burden of proof to require the company to demonstrate safety if it chooses not to provide a warning. Now, Prop 65 does not set limits or ban or restrict substances per se, but rather it is based on exposure and, in theory, risk. And and, and again, in theory, risk-based regulation typically is a good thing from a business perspective, rather than regulating based simply on inherent hazard and without consideration of actual exposure or experience. Unfortunately, Prop 65 does not use the same safety and risk standards that companies typically look to. Uh, whether established by EPA, OSHA, FDA, CPSC, or any other number of agencies, federal or state. Those don't matter usually for Prop 65, those agency standards. Instead, the risk standard used by Prop 65 is extremely conservative and generates much lower limits for when a warning is required than you see in other regulatory programs. Now, on top of that, so you have this unique uh, burdened structure. And on top of that, you add in the enforcement mechanism. So it's not just the attorney general, and it's not a government agency, but private plaintiffs are responsible for over 99% of all cases. And all the plaintiff needs to do to bring a case is identify the presence of a listed chemical and plausible exposure route. Then it falls to the company to prove that that exposure is below a level requiring a warning. Now, note that I did not say that they have to prove that the exposure is safe, quote-unquote. Though technically, Prop 65 refers to, quote, safe harbor levels, those levels are not what we traditionally think of as safe. And they certainly do not mean that higher levels than those calculated under Prop 65 pose a risk in any sense of the word. Establishing those, quote-unquote, safety levels under Prop 65 requires taking an extremely conservative approach. You'll hear me say that a number of times, extremely conservative approach, so that the levels of the safe levels that they derive using the prescribed Prop 65 methods are much lower than what an agency, CPSC or FDA or EPA, or almost any other regulator would ever say. 
So the ultimate frustration really comes when a company does all of this work, prepares a well-done, scientifically reasonable exposure assessment that shows using, again, conservative assumptions and methods that any possible exposure to a chemical, reasonably possible at least, chemical in the product is below the established safe harbor level. And this work involves a lot of, of different factors. You have the concentration of the chemical in the product, possible routes of exposure, whether it's inhalation, dermal, oral, you know, how much exposure is likely to occur from normal handling, you know, how much of the substance may rub off onto your skin or be ingested. You know, what is in fact normal handling and use? You know, what's the duration of the exposure, et cetera, et cetera, right? So however, you know, even if all of this is done well, a plaintiff often still can say, okay, well, we think exposure is different. Let's have our expert battle your expert in court where the burden of proof is on you. So knowing this full well, they know full well the cost of doing so usually exceeds the likely amount of settling the case. So accordingly, companies rationally often may decide, even though they don't necessarily want to, that if a listed chemical is present in any amount in their product, they simply decide to put a warning on their product or in the place of business and they be, and be done with it, not have to worry about it. That's why you see warnings all over the place in California and on products increasingly. Now, I'm not saying that there are no defenses. In fact, there are some very good ones. And a good exposure assessment can help get a case dismissed or rescinded by the plaintiff. Plus, you should consider once you settle a case, be prepared for more to come you know, from the same plaintiff or others. It sort of makes you a target. Now, the purported goal of Prop 65, of course, is to prompt businesses to eliminate use of the listed substances, carcinogens and reproductive toxins, or at least minimize exposure to them. But for many of the over 900 chemicals on that list, that's not always possible. Consider lead, for example, which is naturally present in all sorts of things, from foods and dietary supplements to metal products. There's just no way to get, get around it or avoid it being in these products at some even very low levels. And, you know, there are, of course, some, you know, success stories with Prop 65. We have to acknowledge those, you know, getting lead out of children's candy, for example. And it is true, yes, that there is benefit in forcing companies to take a closer look at the chemicals in their products, including those that may not be present intentionally. You know, Prop 65, no doubt, has led the charge in this area. But for every success, there are dozens of cases where the best that can be said about them is that the plaintiffs won at a game of gotcha that have minimal or no real public benefit. I mean, classic example recently is, is the, uh, still in the media, is the acrylamide in coffee case, you know, where there's literally no evidence that coffee causes cancer, uh, but laboratory tests show that levels, certain levels, high levels of acrylamide can do so in laboratory animals. This has no you know, correlation to human experience, yet the court in that case agreed with the plaintiffs that a, that a uh, warning is required. Now, fortunately, uh, steps have been taken to um, uh, you know, remedy that absurd result. In the same vein, we're going down the same path here. California is currently considering listing acetaminophen, so Tylenol, as a carcinogen. Also ridiculous and contrary to any uh, practical sense. So at worst, you know, too often you have these warnings that distract from real public health threats by plastering relatively meaningless warnings all over the place. It's really become a case of chicken little to the extent that most California consumers don't even see the warnings anymore or pay attention to them. 
Ironically, the bigger impact may be in misleading consumers outside California who are not as familiar with the warnings and don't have the background to understand why they are there, but they're starting to increasingly see them through online sales and others, otherwise on packaging. So what about reform of the Prop 65 program? I mean, just in 2016, California made major revisions to the specifics of how to deliver the warnings. But the impetus for those changes, in large part, was to make the warnings more meaningful. To some extent, they did that. More content on the chemical involved and a little more information for the consumer. But nothing was done to change or address the critical determination of when a warning is required. The big question for a company is not how to give the warning. That's the relatively easy part. But when a warning is needed. Guidance or reform is still desperately needed in this area. You know, to avoid plaintiff lawsuits or their threat, which is all it takes sometimes, when the company in fact has done its due diligence. Interestingly, just as a quick aside, when New York legislation was floated early last year to establish a similar type of program to Prop 65, that draft legislation notably does not include the option of private enforcement, but rather relies on a more traditional regulatory process. So it would avoid many of these concerns, presumably. So what should companies do to comply? You know, first and crucially, and maybe this again is the point of Prop 65, know your product and what is in it, intentionally or as a contaminant. You know, in particular, pay attention to the most high-profile substances that account for the vast majority of Prop 65 cases. Lead and phthalates are way above at the top of the list. They must combine, they must account for over 90% of cases. There are many others, though, that, are, that pop up frequently. Cadmium, bisphenol A, acrylamide in foods are among them, but there are a number of others that, that you see regular uh, notices about. You know, you can request information from your suppliers. You know, the, the new 2016 amendments uh, try to push liability up the chain to the product manufacturer and limit retailer liability. Frankly, that's a subject for a whole separate podcast, which we could talk about. But manufacturers, for their part, need to know what is in their ingredients or components that they use to make the the consumer product. And to get that information, you need to communicate with your suppliers and consider agreements with them to identify whether a Prop 65 chemical is present, and if so, at what concentration, what are the potential exposure patterns, and how do you, if there are is exposure, how to comply with Prop 65. You may want to request supporting data as well. You know, indemnity agreements are fairly common in this area um, to address who bears responsibility if a plaintiff comes knocking. Uh, and again, consider having an exposure assessment done to inform the determination of whether a warning should be provided, and at least to provide an initial defense if no warning is given. One thing to pay particular attention to is online sales. Exponentially, we've seen uh, exponential growth there uh, over the last few years in the number of cases originating from online product sales including many with companies located outside California to ship to the state. I, I get an increasing number of cases which involve uh, companies, say, in New York or elsewhere that have uh, shipped a product to California, not thinking about Prop 65 or not being aware of the requirement even, and being hit with a, a notice of uh, violation by a private enforcer. So really, that's just a quick high-level review of, or at least my stream of consciousness rant about Prop 65. You know, it's a very nuanced area, and, and not to be cliche, but uh, it, it is a case-by-case -case situation in many of these, in these uh, matters. So in short, if you manufacture, distribute, or sell a product in California, including online, then you need to consider Prop 65. <clears throat> Please stay tuned to my Kelly Greenlaw blog for the latest. Uh, once again, I'm Joe Green with Kelly Dry and Warren. 
give me a call at 202-342-8849 or email me or visit my blog if you have any questions. And thanks very much for listening. For additional information on this and other topics, please visit kellydry.com. Kelly Dry has podcasts available through your podcast provider.